Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 3, Dinkianicus and the Art of Mythic Cartography. Episode 8, The Further Adventures of Nera, The Cow and the Time Machine. As Nera climbed out of the steep cave into the darkness, he was met by autumn smoke smells of damp and decay clustering round him like a guard of arms wakeful and watching. The cold night air caught at his throat and he shivered. And yet there was another odour, strong, green, fresh, pungent. He glanced down at the bunched shapes in his hands. Their colours were stolen from them in the moonless black, but he knew what it was that he held. He knew what had been brought from that summer bright place beyond the cave mouth yawn. Another world, warm, golden, the woman. He raised the spiked flowers to his face, savouring their strong scent. It was true then, had been no dream. Only a short time before, he had truly stood beside her, his golden woman, in the shining of the she. It was true then, had been no dream. His memories did not play him false. How long had it been since he'd witnessed that attack on the dune of Crookan, seen it all on fire? How long had it been since he'd tracked the she-warriors into that dangerous cave, had followed in their footsteps, repeated their passwords? How long since he had been captured, passed to the house of the woman, carried the burden of her firewood, and then carried her, his golden prize, to his bed. How long was it? Three days? Three weeks? And now he stood here, in the mortal world, in the dull darkness, alone. And it seemed that no time had passed at all. Nera peered into the night, and then chose the path that would return him to the dune. He was certain now that he moved through the same ragged, sour night in which he had accepted Eilil's and Maeve's brash challenge. And he had achieved the challenge, had tied a withy ring round the foot of the hanged man, a corpse that uh, had spoken to him, uh, had begun this strange adventure. Oh, but that seemed so long ago. So long ago. Nera shuddered. He thought he could perceive the tortured silhouette of the gallowed corpse still swinging in the dark distance. Oh no, it hadn't been a dream. It was all for the sake of a golden hilted sword, the prize offered by Eilil for a daring deed. It was all for the sake of a golden haired woman, the prize of his choosing. No. It was she who had chosen him. What was it that she had told him? The attack you saw on Kurkan was an illusion, was not true. Yet it will be true, for the hosts of the she will attack the dune the next sour time, when the doors lay open, and then... And then the host will not be gentle. You must warn them, lest they do not believe you. Take fruits of summer with you. Take, oh, wild garlic, primrose and golden fern. 
He had turned to go when she spoke again. Nera, I, I am pregnant and I shall wear you a son. So before your people come to destroy the she at Sawan, fetch us out, your family and your herds. He was very close to the dune of Kuroka now. Light spilled out from the fire-framed doorway. He could make out the doorkeeper in the ruddy brightness. Nera tightened his grip on the burden he held in his hands, and the powerful aroma rose up like a swarm of summer flies. Oh no, he had all he needed to satisfy the great ones within. He would claim the golden sword. But then, he would return to the she. Well, we've looked at this tale of Echtranera before, uh, particularly in our special of Corpse Carrying for Beginners. Um, and we even touched on some parts of the wider tale, the Toynbo Angen, if you like, which is the mm -hmm. umbrella under which we have the Echtranera, um, when we were looking at the death of Brickrew in our exhaustive uh, oh, yeah, because his, exploration. The de his death is referenced in Echtranera, isn't it? Is, it is, exactly. Uh, it's something I have to say. I was listening back to Corpse Carrying for Beginners the other mm. day, so I have to confess the sin of omission. <laughs> I was slightly shocked. When, when we were discussing the adventures of Nera, mm. We weren't really interested in the parts that directly connected with the toy. No, we, we were mostly looking at the, the first bit with the corpse yeah. on the back. And Well, I noticed, I clearly said right near the opening, that the adventure of Nero have nothing to do with the toy. <laughs> that is not true. It was true in terms of the part of the story that we were looking exactly, at. Exactly, yeah. But even at the time, the, the, we knew the toy was connected, so I apologise for saying that. <laughs> but as we've been looking at um, this podcast mm. episode, we've realised that the toy is even more central to it. Well, or that this tale is very much inextricably bound with a whole set of other tales which kind of culminate in the Toyn Bokun. Yeah. But, you know, to be fair, at the time we were looking at corpse carrying, we were comparing that particular motif with the Tygo Cain and the Little yeah. People, which is a very local story to hear. Yeah, we were looking at it in terms of... Uh, um, the festival of exactly, Sarland. yeah, and um, comparing, compare and contrast mm. with the folk tale, yeah, and uh, textual tale, exactly, yeah. So we can sort of excuse ourselves, <laughs> but nevertheless, I was a bit concerned. Yeah, yeah. Our main focus this time is very much a Dinhianicus one, isn't it? Well, it is insofar as uh, the tale is very much centred around Kruachan. It was one of the things that did interest us when we were looking at it in corpse carrying, but the actual landscape, if you like, of, of Kruachan itself, the complex of the monuments and the cave are really crucial to this. Mm -hmm. So even though we did look at this tale before, I think it's well worth recapping it as a whole. Well, it's a great story. It is, and we can now include those bits that we excluded previously and, and stick them into this assemblage and get a much bigger, fuller picture of it. And we it. might get to talk about why we called this title The Counter Time Machine. We might, but then we <laughs> might have to leave that up to our listeners to figure out. <laughs> Well, the story starts one sour night of when Island and Maeve and all the warriors are sitting around the fire mm. in the darkness and uh, it's spooky time of year. The portal is, the doors are open. Mm. Idle suddenly says, OK, let's have a competition. There's a hangman out there. We hanged a couple of captives a day mm -hmm. or two ago. Look, I'll give this golden hilted sword to anyone who can tie a, a willow band, a withy, mm. round the foot of the corpse. Yeah. Well, nobody much likes the idea. When you're sitting around 
uh, telling ghost stories. It's the a, dark is always darker. It's a Halloween dare, basically. And uh, Nero says, I'll do it, mm -hmm. and off he goes. Well, he tries twice to tie this uh, withy around the ankle of the hangman, until suddenly the corpse sort of sighs and says, oh, you're useless. Look, put a peg in it, with you? Mm. And Nero has a go at this, this fits the withy, and mm -hmm. he's not reacted at all. He just says, okay. And then the corpse says, look, I've done you a favour. I want you to do me a favour. I was thirsty when they hanged me. Mm -hmm. How about taking me for a drink of water? Mm -hmm. And he sort of slithers off the gallows and onto his neck. Mm -hmm. His arm, arms round his neck and off goes Nero into the darkness. Yeah. Well, one thing about that first section is... He takes this corpse talking corpse very much as a sort of matter of fact, doesn't he? Yeah, there's no kind of, oh my God, who <laughs> said that or, or anything like that. You can talk? Yeah, it's just, you know, that he goes out, he does this thing, the corpse talks to him and he answers. But it's, it's particularly interesting, I think, that the reason that the corpse talks to him is in order to do him a favour, in order to help him out. And then because the corpse has helped Nera out with how to put this peg in properly, mm -hmm. um, then there's, you know, a burden of returning that favour on Nera. And yeah. so the corpse can then ask Nera for, a to get a drink. There's a lot in this story mm -hmm. about returning favours. Absolutely. And, and all kinds of exchange. I mean, not just favours, but lots of other kinds of exchange. This seems to be the first exchange between two worlds. Yeah. You know, I keep getting the feeling, and I wonder for some time, there's nothing said in the text, but I keep feeling that this captive is a she-captive, that there's um, a sort of battle going on, mm. a constant tension between the two worlds, mm. especially where they are at Crookham with this cave that's supposed to lead to the exactly. other world anyway. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it, it makes sense that it's actually a she-captive. That's just a storyteller's way of looking yeah. at it. Okay, so Nero is going to bring this corpse and try and get him a drink of water and they approach a few little houses in the area. The first house they can't get into because it is surrounded by a big lake of water that they can't cross. The corpse says, well, that's because they've thrown the foot water out the house. Dirty water. Yeah. Grey water. The, the slop water, yeah. yeah they, don't keep, they don't keep slops in the house. Yeah. Clean house. Exactly. So that means that he can't, that the corpse can't enter there. They come to a second house, which is protected by a ring of fire, and this is because the family have smored, smothered down the fire for the night, which keeps it both safe and keeps it lit for the night. But it's when they come to the third house, as you might expect in a fairy tale structure like this, um, it has neither of these things because the family haven't done their housework, basically. They haven't done their chores. They haven't thrown out the dirty water. They haven't properly damped down the fire. So they're able to go in. The corpse, I think it says that he actually has a drink from the slop water, which mm -hmm. is really nice. Um, but there's three vessels anyway. And he, when he takes a drink from the third, he spits some of that water in the faces of the people of the house and they die. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> well, it just shows, you know, there's a real cost of transition between mm. this, these transitions between the worlds. And when you they come together, there's a cost to it. And it also talks about good housekeeping. It does, yeah. I mean, the, there, there are obviously mundane kinds of readings that you could put on this, but... We talked a lot about that in Corpse Carry, Exactly, yeah. That, and uh, the, that sur survival of those kind of uh, traditions of good housekeeping. Yeah, after know. all, you know, if you keep the slops in the house, you're more likely to get illness. Exactly. 
disease. Um, if mm. you keep a an unsmoured fire is dangerous, mm. particularly in a turf and timber house. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a matter of safety. Mm. And yet, it's also if you if you have anything in your house which is paradoxical that shouldn't mm. be there, you're at risk. Yeah, there is a sense in which you know the dirty water which should be outside is inside, and the fire which should be lit during the day is lit at night. So there there are things in the wrong place. And this lets in the and uh, this lets in the paradox. The, exactly and the influence then of, of the other world or if you like a, a negative contact with uh, the other world it, it still makes me feel as though this this corpse has more is not mm. just a dead warrior but yeah has a, is a, a she warrior mm. okay let's go on with the story mm -hmm. well Nera takes the corpse out of the way it's put back to his torture yeah when he's presumably rehung the corpse yeah he turns around and sees the whole of Krokon on fire yeah and being attacked by sheer warriors mm. well he follows the warriors um deep into the the cave yes you know the cave of uh Krokon yeah and uh, follows them deep underground. Yeah, and then we have this wonderful uh, episode of, of how he gets in there yeah. because they're all sort of queuing up to get in through the cave and uh, each person in the queue says to the one behind them, oh, there's a man on the track there. And the person behind said, oh, the road's heavier for it. And that's kind of a call and response that lets you in. Mm. And so Nero, all Nero has to do is stand at the back of the queue and copy this and he gets in. But he doesn't get away with it you know it's they do notice that there's a stranger in their midst it's um very folktale motive a bit Tis. like the 12 dancing princesses oh yes know, there's loads of them mm, but, mm, uh, mm. but yeah you do you're right he doesn't get away with no. it he gets brought up before the king who again he, he doesn't exactly uh, sentence him to push a boulder up a hill for eternity you know all he has to do now is because he's trespassed into mm -hmm. their world and is now you know a, a foreigner a guest in their world or in their kingdom and um, he's set to do some work so he has to carry firewood every day he's allotted to a this woman's house isn't yeah it? the king sort of goes well, married woman yeah he just says she's there's a single woman you go live with her and then you just carry firewood every day and you know that's now your role within this society. Yeah, it's interesting the way that this underground world becomes another world, mm, the mm. other world. It's a beautiful place with woodlands, fields, houses, wells, and everything you would, would expect. Yeah. It's just the world under another sun. Yeah, and so it's it's not sort of what you might expect from, I suppose, some of the more Stygian or uh, kind of Orfeo type of underworld where it's all dark and dank and, and wet and so on. It's it. They go through a door which is in a cave, but then... It's like they haven't come out underground, they've come out in another world. The other interesting thing is that um, although it's meant to be this fairy world, if mm. you like, this world of the she, the unnamed king, shows no magic powers, he just won't let Nira leave. Yeah. I mean, there's no nothing about like, um, oh, I know, all these folk tales where you mustn't eat the, the food of the mm. other world mm. or there's certain things you mustn't say or yeah. mustn't do. Nothing of that. Yeah. He yeah. just doesn't let him leave. Yeah. And the other thing is, there's no names. Yeah, which is, is always a bit of an interesting one. We've, we've pointed this one out before when we've talked about, I think when we were talking about Macha way back mm. in Series 1, Episode 2, and uh, in the episode with the Morrigan and the Dagda in uh, the Kathmagathurud, um, you have all these people who are just referred to as the king, the woman. They become archetypes. Mm, mm. It, it, I find that really, really interesting. Yeah. I know often in the stories that I used to create years ago, I love to 
keep their archetypal exactly. forms. The woman, the yeah. man, the shining one, the mm. warrior, the fair one. Yeah. It sort of works. Mm. And of course, as you said, he loses status, doesn't he? This is one of the things that I like because even though he's gone to another world, it's sort of... It's, it's a bit like, like just... a neighbouring tribe. Exactly, yeah. Like going to a neighbouring kingdom. They're the only people really who had um, the ability to travel freely and keep their status in early the Ireland poets, were the poets and the bishops. So an, an ordinary person, even, you know, a, a well-thought-of warrior, if he goes into someone else's territory, then he has no status effectively. He's, he's now at the bottom of the heap and will need to work his way up probably through several generations. That, I think, shows that it has that quality of just being another kingdom, just another place. One thing, I was reading through a book back from 1911, it's uh, McCulloch's Religion of the Ancient Celts. Mm. Now, it's interesting for its sources, it gives yeah. all the classical sources. Exactly, I yeah. don't agree with everything it said, obviously. Mm. This book has a very strong uh, emphasis on the Celtic world of the dead, mm. which was... Um, the Greeks, particularly the Romans, were so envious of yeah, because yeah. the Celts had this idea that they were just a parallel world mm, mm. and that the dead didn't end up as miserable shades yeah. but could come and go at certain times of the year in mm. their original forms. Exactly. It, it, the book is kind of curious because it keeps going on about people living bodily after death and this kind of thing. And it's a little bit hard, I think, to wrap your head around. Um, but I think that it's this depiction of the other world is really, you know, part of what he's discussing there mm -hmm. is that there's you know a parallel world which sometimes is where the dead are you know or people that we've lost if you like in a sort of christian world mm. this distinction between the uh, other worlds mm. the world of the she yeah. and the world of the dead does become confused like you say it's not creepy ghosts not even hell or judgment exactly there yeah. is no judgment mm. that, that that's what was made clear in that book exactly and also yeah. from what we know mm, there mm. is no fear of the other world because there's no judgment yeah exactly it's you not, get there anyway yeah it's not a question of you know uh, you could die and then go to a terrible place for eternity the the consequences of your bad actions are in this world and then you move to another world and it'll be the same you know what annoyed me was the way that McCulloch's book goes on about all oh, the lack of ethicality oh, yes yeah you know, the unethical it's an yeah. unethical afterlife mm, mm. which I think it's a little bit strange yeah. but you know if this is deep in the shall we say in the broadest sense mm. Celtic worldview, mm. no wonder Narnia is so popular exactly yeah it's an enduring idea it certainly is yeah Another thing that struck me is that, of course, Kroken is built on a Neolithic site. Exactly. And as, as we've said before, you know, when we're looking at stories that were written in, you know, the ninth century that are reflecting sometimes a society of, you know, 900 years before that. Yeah. But even um, in the year even, even, zero, yeah. <laughs> there, there was still an ancient site. So, 2,000 or more years old. Exactly. So, you know, even back in the middle of what's known as the Iron Age, uh, the Neolithic monuments at Kruchen were ancient and mysterious, but they were also, you know, full of ancestors. Yeah, they're full know. of mysterious, unknown, significant things. Yes, yes. <laughs> so they were living with the ancestors. Exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they often made their dwellings or their fortresses on top of burial mounds. Yeah, you yeah. know, they must have found the odd femur or skull. It's absolutely, it's very clear at uh, the whole area of Kruchen. Yes, and it is quite a complex and really fascinating. Complex in every sense. Exactly. Right, so in, in his new job, anyway, um, Nera is in this neighbouring kingdom, in this other world, and... He's supposed to be there for three days, but I keep feeling it feels like longer. Yeah, it does. I mean, 
it can be quite difficult to get a handle on the time scale of this whole story. I as, don't as think we'll it matters. See. He's in a sort of timeless place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So with this new firewood carrying job, every day that he does it, he sees an interesting sight whereby a blind man is carrying a lame man on his back and they go up to a well every morning. And uh, every morning the blind man says to the lame man, is it there? The lame man looks in the well, says, yes, it is. And then they go off. But this <laughs> happens every day. And naturally, Nero is quite curious about it. So once he's seen that a few times, um, he decides he'd better ask the missus. And so she explains to him that uh, what they're looking for is a crown of Brian. They're guarding, aren't they? Yeah, it seems that maybe it's you would expect it to be in the main palace if it was legitimate. So it might have been stolen. Yeah. Um, but in any in any case, it's been hidden in the bottom of this well. And apparently the king will only trust the blind man and the lame man to look after it. So... After Nero gets that explanation from his wife, he says, can you explain why I'm here? And she says, well, what do you mean by that? And he tells about how on Samhain Eve that yeah. he saw Crookan on fire. And that was, I think, that's sort of one of the reasons why he followed the she into the other world. Well, yeah, I think he thinks that uh, the, his, his home is gone. Exactly, yeah. He's and nowhere he else wants to go. revenge and he has nowhere to go. Yeah. And he follows them in to see if he can exact revenge and mm. finds that things are a little odd. Yeah. So he must be stuck in this other world thinking that his home is gone. That's my feeling of it. Now, I mean, that that's not in the text by any means, but it just that's the, the feeling that you'd put if you were writing this as a mm. novel, for example. But in any case, um, his wife says that what he saw is not true but it will come true the following Samhain unless Nero goes and warns his people mm. so that they're planning an attack. It won't happen until next Samhain, uh, but that Nero can kind of turn the tables if he can go and warn Alla and Maeve goes, and the crowd to leave me. Exactly. So um, he wants some way that they will be convinced that his story is true. And very often, you, again, this is a common kind of story motif, um, she suggests that he go and gather some of the summer plants, as you described in the opening mm -hmm. story there. So there's the wild garlic, the primrose and the fern. Um, and that he can bring those through and that will kind of show that he's speaking yeah. the truth. And it's interesting, you know, rest. that's another reason why I get the feeling that time's gone, because he's gone mm. into the other world in winter, mm. but it's summer in the other world. And there's this, yeah. still this feeling that it's always summer, although nothing's spoken. Yeah, uh, well, there, there's, there's various different things it's about just... the way that... Time is different there, you know. That that seems to be the the consistent. So point. of course, as I wrote in the story, he goes back through the cave. Mm. He makes his world back to Crookan. He mm. walks in and goes, "Damn here! Mm. I tied the withy around the corpse, and look what I've got." And they mm. go, "Nah, you've only just gone." Mm. Yeah, you you couldn't have even had time to get to the corpse. Mm. And he says he explains what happens yeah. where they don't believe, and he said, "Well, where did I get these?" This time thing is a is a bit of an issue, you know, three days or three months or whatever it is. Um, there's so many other references in other stories, aren't there? Like Oshin yes. going to uh, Tin and Oak, yeah. very well known story. And I and then you've got the three days, which turns into three hundred years. If I've got, I may have yeah, got yeah something wrong, like that, something but it's like it's that kind of scale. And, and then you've got the children of Lear, of course, and they're three times three hundred year. Yes, they're exile. exile. Yeah, yeah. So it's it always is. I think that particularly the three times three, that nine is very much seems to be a number that can stand for loads or for infinity. You know, mm -hmm. so I think that the three threes is particularly important. But you know. That's, it's just, it pops up all just, over the place. And there's always that sense that time is running at a different pace. 
it's just suggesting that it's not the same time we've mm. got. Mm. The other interesting thing, you mentioned it earlier on, the Crown of Brian. Mm. There is a suggestion that it's stolen treasure, isn't there? I think that there is. I mean, it, it can. it's perhaps maybe reading a bit too much into it, but it is mentioned along two other great treasures, which is someone's mm. shirt and, you know, those kind of things, which don't come into this story. Um, I think when we were discussing it in the, the corpse-carrying episode, um, we'd come across a reference that these are probably, if you like, a family heirloom that proves one dynasty's legitimacy as uh, mm. as rulers. So, you know, from that point of view, I think that's what the crown here stands for. But... And if, if we're jumping ahead a little bit, mm. I know, but nevertheless, it's one of the things that's particularly pointed out, pointing out is going to be brought back. Exactly. It's one of the prizes that will be brought back yes. to the uh, mortal world. Yeah, you're absolutely right that, that uh, Nira's wife, who seems to always have a handle on what's going on and what will be going on, um, she does promise, if you like, that, that if um, Nira warns Alil and Maeve and that they attack the she before the she attack them then one of the things that will happen is that this crown will be brought out of the See, she it is stolen treasure it, well it, it, at least it will be stolen treasure if it's not already <laughs> but there, it's a, a crown of contention yeah 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 next bit's quite interesting mm. and it, you read it from the text here that was the very year in which Fergus McRoy came as an exile from the land of Ulster to Eilil and Maeve to Crookham yeah now who is this man? Why is he so important? Well, we met him an awful lot in our uh, trip through the Fled Frickran and um, he's very important to a lot of these Ulster-based mm. stories. Specifically, though, this is referring to his role in the story of Deirdre and the Sons of Ushlu, mm. which is a very difficult story <laughs> from any perspective. It's incredibly complicated and really, I really, really do not want to go into it here. Um, but suffice it to say that as a result of his role in that story, he ends up in exile from Ulster. And he goes down to Kruken, partly because there's an implication in the tale that Kruken is, you know, not a place that the Ulstermen will frequent. You know, now he's brought 3,000 of his fellow Ullads with him. So, you know, there's there's quite a civil war type feeling. There's a lot going on here, isn't there? Oh, there's, yeah, there's an awful lot. So anyway, so that's how come... Uh, Fergus has ended up in Cruachan at this time. Uh, the central thing I take from this is is that coming of an outsider in this town mm. is a bit like grit in an oyster shell. Yes, yeah. Um, I think there's an emerging pattern, but maybe mm. we better finish the story yeah, first. Yeah, we will, and then we'll, we'll bring those all together, yeah. Right, well, Alil, at any rate, sends Nera back to the other world to get his family and his cattle out so that they can attack it next Samhain. Mm. Now, it seems like in the world of Kruachan, it's still going to be a while until next Samhain, until they can actually mount the attack. Nira goes back to see the missus. Uh, she's very happy to see him. She's actually been covering for him. He's supposed to have been working, carrying firewood every day. And she says that she's been saying... She's been doing the job for she's him. She's been doing the job for him for about a year, that she told the king he was sick, basically. Um, so Nira goes back to see the king anyway, and he's sort of, oh, good to see you on your feet again. You know, he's he's unhappy with Nera but there isn't any massive kind of consequence um, but also the trick works you know yeah he slept with the woman that's why the king's unhappy Nera's son has been born ah yeah yeah that's yeah. what it is during that year as as you said in the opening story um, she was already pregnant very, in very 
quick time I have to say uh, before he ever left uh, the she the first time and now when he comes back again I presume it's sort of a very short time later in his own personal timeline but uh, by the time he gets back the son has been born mm-hmm. um, and of course his his herd is growing as well it's her his goods and his cattle um, and one of the things that his wife does once he's back and all the rest of it is send him out to actually go and watch over his cattle. So a year has passed in the fairy world, as it were. It's the she so. world. Yeah. And very little time in the mortal world. Yeah, yeah. Um, is she actually immortal? It's, it's really hard to tell, isn't it? It is. I, I don't think they necessarily are. Um, but I do think there is a difference in, in yeah. time scale, you know. Um, I, it, it can be really head-twisting to try and figure yeah. out, I have to say. So Nira's wife, even though she's been pregnant, yeah. has got away with doing his work. Yes. But everyone's noticed that she's had a son. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of hard to, to cover. <laughs> but again, it's it's almost like every time Nira goes to see the king, the king says, oh, well, I wish you hadn't done that. But there isn't any massive negative consequences I think although he does agree to accept any consequences the king says he does yeah but you know it's not going to be you know he's not going to be exiled or executed or maimed or anything like that you know as he knows (laughs) so Nera takes his cattle to the field including the cow born at the same time as their son yes and given to him Mm. and he falls asleep of course he does and um as we've discovered happens if you fall asleep watching cows um, generally, the Morrigan comes up and steals one. This <laughs> <laughs> is sort of a, her MO, by you the way. Just do that, hiding behind your stuff, going, Is he asleep yet? Is he asleep yet? <laughs> Quick, get the cows! Is he asleep yet? <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit silly. She does a lot more than. Uh, I know, I know, but. Pitch cows, but it's just. But this is her MO, up. there's no doubt about it. <laughs> so, but of course, the cow that she steals is the very one that was born the same time as Nera's son, um, and that was therefore given to Nera's son in in a similar way that you know Cuchulain has the two foals who were born mm-hmm. the same time as him, and they are brought up with him. So the um, Morrigan takes this cow, brings it over quite a long way, actually, all the way over to Cooley, Coolnia, which is uh, sort of Strangford Loch area. Um, and so the cow is back in the land of the mortals now, or sort of. Well, yeah, it's sort of it, it's gone across a couple of territories, I think, um, but from one coast to the other, nearly. Um, but she does this specifically so that the cow can be covered by the Don Cunha, the brown, the brown bull, bull of, of Cooley. Yes, yeah. he of famed name. The, that bull. That bull. The bull. <laughs> yeah. So, and this seems very deliberate on on the Morgan's part. The cow has been mated to the bull and the cow is coming back in calf. The Morrigan is overtaken by Cuchulain, who sort of stops her on the road and says, you know, halt who goes there. Um, you can't take anything out of my kingdom worth of uh, without either my permission or an exchange. It's my guess. Yeah. So there. Exactly. <laughs> so what's happening here? Is Cuchulain a control freak or is he just acting like a, oh, like a fairy king? Well, it does say that he has all these guests, you know, you know and that he can't uh, let anything leave his home territory of Mortham without his knowledge and all this kind of thing. 
yeah. typical Coca-Cola, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, getting himself entangled in every bit of story, yeah. And then there's this need for exchange, mm. like the cow and the calf and all the rest of it. It reminds me a bit of Terry Pratchett and his, um, oh, you know, the unicorn in Lords and Ages. Yes, that if something comes from one world to the other, then there has to be something Equal else. Equal and opposite exchange. Exactly, that goes Or even back. better, the canon. Yeah. In interesting times, mm -hmm. which ends up hitting Rincewind. <laughs> Most things end up hitting. Sorry, yeah. if you're not Terry Pratchett, <laughs> wouldn't it? But it's, if you aren't, you should be. Yes. <laughs> well, of course, the whole business of exchange and the equal and opposite is made much more complicated when there's a new child born, as in Nero's case, or the calf that the Morrigan is bringing back out within yeah. the cow. Because what comes out is not the same as what went in. Yeah, this, this gets me. So, look, just to which kinship group does the child now belong to? His mother's? His father's? And it's even worse, which group does the calf belong to? And now, does the calf belong to the son's paternal kinship clan or what? <laughs> well, there was an entire paper at last year's TNL at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, which, so far as I know, was pretty much all about what happened if you had someone else's cattle in distraint and one of those cattle had a calf. You know, right. Who does the calf then belong to? It's incredibly complicated, and this, <laughs> that's obviously where the early Irish lawyers made a lot of their so money. So now this is a test case. If a child is born <laughs> to a fairy mother yeah. inside the fairy or the sheer yeah. world, mm -hmm. then what happens if the child comes out? And what happens if it has property? Oh, yeah. You can see it's almost like a test case. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It would really get their knickers in a twist. Yeah, it? yeah. They'd love it. We do have this incident between Cúchulainn and the Morrigan in a whole other story. We have it in the Toynbo Regna, which is... It's mentioned, isn't it? It is. In our text, it specifically says, go and read about this in another story. The Toynbo Regna, which is a fantastic story, starts off with Cúchulainn asleep this time and uh, woken up by a shout in the middle of the night and it is essentially where's my cow where's my cow? <laughs> <laughs> oh not more terry pratchett <laughs> always he gets everywhere <laughs> vibes. no i think no not. no god no um but he's woken up in the middle of the night um his charioteer says he was also woken up and they meet the Morrigan, and she is all dressed in red she's got red hair and this red by the way is derek it's the red of red blood okay? she's crimson Absolutely, as is her chariot, as is the weird one-legged horse who's pulling the chariot with the pole going straight through the middle of its body. Yeah, this time you get to see how it's fixed. Yes. So that it's fixed by a, a wooden bolt, bolt basically. <laughs> it is forehead. That yeah. one-legged horse comes out of the Cape of Crook and in another story. Yeah, it, yeah. it is referenced more than once. Mm. I just keep imagining, how does it move? I know. Does yeah. it hop? Not very dignified. <laughs> Go on, sorry. So, um... The Morrigan also has a, a, there's a man in the chariot beside her who's also all red. Everything in this is Derek. And the man is driving the cow in front of him. And this is the cow that belongs to Nero's son, which was stolen away and has just been covered by the brown bull of, of Cooley. Which Cahullan now sort of believes is his because it's been mated there. It's nobody must take it away. Well, he's just been woken up with someone trying to bring cattle out of the, over the border, yeah. essentially. And he says, stop, nothing goes out of here without my knowledge or permission. The woman, as she's called in this, sort of says back, this is nothing to do with you. You know, this isn't your cow. It's not a cow of anyone that you know. It's not your business. Um, and Cúchulainn says, well, you know, it's leaving my province, so it is my business. Mm -hmm. And why is it that you keep responding to me? Why doesn't the man talk to me when I'm asking these questions? Um, which is 
quite typical Cuchulain in, in some respects, you know, that he, he isn't getting the answers that he expects. Um, the Morrigan says, well, the man isn't answering you because these you're asking these questions to me. Cuchulain wants to know the man's name. The man's name is given to him by the woman. She says, well, his name is Cold Wind and reads and dot, dot, dot. I'm afraid we've lost a bit of mm. uh, manuscript text. And Cuchulain goes, go on. That you're you're taking the mick out of me with that he name. He gets quite angry. He does, he? yeah. He starts getting like you're, he's not being told the truth. Yeah, he he says no. Tell tell me the real name and what's your name that you're so important. And now the man does speak to Cuchulain to give her name, which is given as things such as a lively blade, bladed lips, and uh, spiky locks, and uh, a petty bosom and short and horrible. So she's she's giving her name as the opposite of what she is. Exactly, yeah. And therefore making fun of him again. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It does seem to be, you know, because he keeps on wanting to know and she keeps saying it's not your business. Yeah, she's belittling him. Yeah. Doesn't, isn't there that wonderful bit where she says, leave it alone, you're just out of your depth. Exactly, yeah. You know, yeah. You're, you've, you've bitten off more than you could chew. Mm, mm. If I were you, I'd go back to bed. Yeah. That he, really is going to get him, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, he doesn't want to take no for an answer. So he eventually, you know, loses it, jumps up onto the chariot and is essentially challenging or threatening her with his spear. And she said, it would be much better for you if you put that away and didn't put it anywhere near me. She eventually does say, well, I'm taking this cow because it's the fee for a poem. And she says, I am, in fact, a female satirist. Um, And so Kukula wants to hear the poem and she tells him the poem which is, from what I can tell, it's a bit of Rusk poetry, as you might expect from mm. the Morrigan. And from what I can tell, it is essentially a foretelling of the Thoinbo Kulnya. And probably within that, you know, Cúchulain's, uh terrible fate that will come as a result. Yes, isn't there some mention of the, the fact that she says, you will only live as long, until this cow is a yearling? Yeah, exactly. So that means he's got less than... Well, just months. over a year yeah, to live, yeah. yeah, yeah. Once she's told this poem... Then he says, oh, well, if if this is going to happen, then I'll kill all the enemy and I'll be... I don't the, care. I'm yeah. going to kill him anyway. Well, he says, you know, I'll be the more glorious for it. Yeah. And um, she says, well, I'm going, I'm here to watch your death. You I know? guard your death, mm. isn't it? I love and yeah. of course, there's that wonderful image of uh, the raven mm. on the pillar, which yes. everybody knows, Cullen yeah. dying on the pillar, yeah. you know, our GPO statue mm-hmm. with the raven on top. And here's a reference to it. Exactly. And in fact, to that moment... Mm that when Cuchulain sort of goes for the woman in anger, they all disappeared and all that's left is this black bird. Mm. Um, and then we get this brilliant, threatening war of words, which is a bit like the magician's battle. That... If you do this, I'll do that. Yeah. If you become this, I'll become something stronger. If yeah. you, you know, whatever you do, I can do better. Mm. It almost feels like a game of stone, paper, scissors. I know I've said yeah. that before. Yeah. The two magicians is mm. a bit like a, a sort of child rather childish but Mm -mm. on a magical level yeah yeah and we did refer to this particular exchange before because this is the one where Cuchulain is saying well you know I'm going to kill all the enemies in the battle and the woman says I'll be an eel and I'll wrap around your leg and he goes well I will crush the eel and she says no I'd actually be a wolf and I'll tear a strip of flesh from your right hand all the way around to your left hand and he says, well, then I'll break your legs. <laughs> and she says, well, I'll be a white red-eared cow in the ford where you're fighting and I'll have a hundred white red-eared cows behind me. And he says, well, I'll throw stones and until one of your eyes burst. Mm-hmm. And each time he's 
threatens one of these, he says, you will not be healed unless I heal you. Mm. Is there not another reference? Does that story appear somewhere else in the Twine, doesn't it? Um, th this is really the, the main incident where it happens. There is another one where he meets a, a woman at a ford, but I think that that's a retelling of this. I think it is. That's you what know? I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, um, it's doubled up. Exactly. This is the story. This is the story itself. And of course, um, not going to do any massive spoilers, but by the end of the Twine, you, as you might expect, this does mm. come to pass that the Morrigan, the woman, is wounded um, and that Cuchulain heals her by accident mm. because she's in disguise and he gives her blessings that heal her wounds. What is interesting is how strong the contrast is, what a different atmosphere mm. there is between the Dagda's meeting yes. with Indaic's daughter, mm. which is a similar sort of challenge game, Oh, it's, it's almost, with a totally different atmosphere. Exactly, and I think that that must be deliberate on one part or another, if not both, that the incident from Kath Magathurid's where the Dagda comes upon Indaik's daughter, where there's an exchange whereby she wants to know his full name mm -hmm. and he's being evasive about it. And then that war of words where she'll be an oak tree and he'll leave the mark of his mm. axe in, in the oak tree. But that one ends with them becoming lovers and with Indaik's daughter, you know, saying that she will spy for the enemies of her father. This one ends very differently. Yeah, and in the other version of mm. the meeting between Cahul and, and the Morrigan, mm. he says, what time have I got for the whiteness of women's yeah. rights, I think it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's exactly the opposite. Exactly. The way that the Toynbo Regovna ends is essentially saying that the entirety of the Toynbo Kulnia will happen, and it will happen on account of the calf that's now in that cow's womb that the Morrigan is bringing out of Murthavna. Mm -hmm. That it's everything revolves around that. So it's a very important moment, mm. and uh, although it's missing mm. in our, this in our text, well, it's referred to. It's referred to. It's very possible the way that these texts or stories work and interact. It's very possible that it's assumed the audience knows this already. They mm. already know that story. So all that our story, the Ectranera Toynbo Angan story, has to do is refer to it and then immediately your audience's mind has that whole picture that whole exchange well, we've taken a long time going through this extra story i know but i think it's worth it because it's so important can we it put is. the text we can of put course the text yeah the there'll be a link yeah definitely on and, the blog. and for those who are kind of getting excited about the, the entirety of the time of Kulnia, you know there'll be links to that up there and it is worth going and having a look and sort of if you like getting familiar with the characters and, uh, I don't think we're and the events. planning to do the whole of it. No, the but it sort of it keeps on coming and knocking on our door, which is a bit of a problem. <laughs> well, if you go to Groken, it's yeah, going to happen. Exactly. There's one more thing that strikes me mm. about this section is, is nothing to do with that story. Mm. But have you noticed there doesn't seem to be any other stories about the Whitehorn, the oh yeah, the poor Finn Venick. Yeah, yeah, the the other bull that is supposed to have uh, brought about the the whole. Uh, we were talking about the brown Cunha. bull and the white bull, but yeah. where's the white bull? I know, yeah, poor thing. Um, it seems like the, the brown bull does definitely gets all the press and that the poor old white horn is just there to be the, to be the other one, yeah. Well, Nira comes back home to the woman, yes. having lost his son's cow. <laughs> yes. 
she's cross with him. She is a bit. <laughs> then the cow comes back on its own, and the woman recognises that it's been covered by the bull. Yeah. And tells him to get out quick before the raid begins. This woman seems to have the overview as usual. Yeah, and she's, as ever, pointing out the next plot point. You know, <laughs> get out of the other world. Exactly. That that uh, the coming back of the cow means that the raid is imminent in yeah. the other world. So you'd better get back to the other one before well, of course, it's too late. It may be a year in the mortal world before mm. the Sauron attack. Yeah. And of course, the portals are only out open at Halloween. Yeah. But in the their other world, time's mm. running a bit more quickly, so he's got to get out straight away. Yeah. That would seem to be the case. I mean, bloody time travel. It's always like that, isn't it? <laughs> right. There's your time machine. Yeah. And your cow. So Nero brings out his family and herd and the moment that the sun hits the mortal world, he gets a name. Yeah, which is interesting. And this is the Angina is the name that he gets, which is the other name for this whole tale, as well as the Echtonera, Adventures of Nero. It's also the Toynbo Angina, which is the cattle raid of Angina or Angin's cows raided. Indeed, it does say that the woman gets a name, but that's only Bay Angina, which just means Angina's lady or... Angina's mum. His mum, yeah. So what does Angina mean? Uh, well, it's a curious one. Um, I'd be very interested if someone has done, if you like, a proper etymology on this. But on the surface, it could mean either... It could mean unconceived. It could mean very well conceived. It could mean unrecognised, unknown, or it could mean very well recognised or no. <laughs> That's the, the wonderful thing with the prefix an, is that it yeah, can be yeah. negative or it can be emphatic. Um, or it could have a root from ein, which is another name for reeds and rushes. You know. Do you know, it's pretty predictable, really, because yeah. he is a paradox. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as soon as the cows get out of the other world and into this world, the bull calf, who has been born of the brown bull of mm -hmm. Cooley and the cow that the Morrigan went to all the trouble of Angina's bringing across cow. the country, Angina's cow, uh, he bellows three times. Now, at that moment, in Cruachan, Alil and Fergus are playing fickle. And uh, when they hear the noise, uh, Fergus doesn't like the sound of that. Yeah, I like some of the words in the poem. He speaks a poem. He does, poem, yeah. This poem of prophecy. And he says, I like not the calf bellowing on the plain of Crookan. And he prophesies that the king will go to war of this. Yeah. And one of the phrases he uses is really interesting. Mm. He says, uh, there will be calves without cows. Yeah, yeah. Now, it struck me that this was a beautifully poetic way of saying that what is to come is not famine mm. or dearth, but, mm. or, but it's war. Yeah. That if there's famine, it would be um, cows, without cows without calves. Yeah. But to say calves without cows yeah. really is a wonderful prophecy of war. Absolutely. An effective and, prophecy of war. Yeah. And, and especially because in this complex of stories, there's a lot of parallelism between the cows and the humans involved. Um, I think in the Toynbo Regna, which we were discussing, there's quite a lot of crossover where humans are being called cows or bulls. And, you know, there's a parallelism that goes on. So saying cows without cows is saying children without parents. Yeah, you know? yeah. So the bull calf then goes to fight the white horn. This yeah. is the white bull. This is the Finn Venock, yeah. yeah. And is beaten, which is not unexpected. Yeah. It bellows again and Maeve immediately asks her herdsman, what's it saying? Yeah, which is an interesting response, all right. Um, but this is where Brickrew manages to step in. He makes his fatal joke. Exactly. Uh, Maeve has asked her herdsman, but Brickrew, you can imagine him kind of leaning over the fiddle board and going, I know what it is, uh, Papa Fergus. He says, uh, that's the song that you were singing this morning. Yeah, and he got five fiddle pieces thrown straight in his face for Exactly. It. And that is his mortal wound, effectively. That means that he now has to stay at Kruken, uh in 
one of the other twin related stories he's going to get trampled by the bulls by the bulls themselves exactly yeah um after that Maeve asks her husband again now there's a bit of a confusion with pronouns here oh god it, it yeah. is <laughs> but when the herdsman actually says uh, what it is that the bull calf is no, saying probably the easiest way of looking at it is probably if the calf's father the don came and fought alongside the calf mm -hmm. then the whitehorn the finn burnock would yeah. be seen for dust in Crooklyn. exactly so it's like if i get my father to fight with me yeah yeah i'll beat you exactly <laughs> but Maeve's answer is fascinating it is she swears if you like a formal oath this is the kind of oath that you know you would be brought up on charges if you broke it and her oath is that she's not going to eat or sleep or drink anything or do anything until she can see that fight between the brown bull of Cooley and the Finn Vinuk the Whitehorn. <laughs> this now is the start, if you like, of the whole Toynbokunya. And uh, the way that the Toynbokunya itself starts with the pillow talk where Maeve and Alil are comparing their possessions just seems utterly irrelevant. Yeah, the other thing I like is... Um... Paul Rickard. Oh yeah, it was a terribly bad joke that he died for, but you know, it was going to happen someday, someone was going to smack him hard enough, you know. So to, that's really the end of the story, mm -hmm. the warriors of Krokun go off and, in their time, sack the she mm -hmm. and bring back the crown of Brion. Yes. And as for Nira, he returns the she and, and is never seen again. again. Right, well, uh, it's been a complex story and I suppose oh, really yes. it would help. I'd rather like to sort of go over the themes yes. and the main points that we've covered. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are, what, two, three stories really all joined together. Easily. And, you know, that's without counting the whole of the Toynbo Cunha and <laughs> many other texts that are intimately related to it. Well, which we really can't tell. Yeah. Um, but I think the main thing is you've got these parallel two worlds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's world of Isla and Maeve. Mm. Um, Island Maves is a very high-structured, high-stated, recognisable world. It is, yeah. Uh, and, you know, everyone's named. Mm. And then you've got the world of the unnamed king of the Shear. Yeah. And no one's named. Yeah, yeah. You know, the woman, the king, the lame man, the hanged man. Mm. Uh, if the hanged man's from that world. and I still think he is. Well, particularly like that, you know, when, when you start to look at who's named and who isn't. Mm, and the hanged man fits, isn't named, it? so it does fit. Then both worlds have treasures. You've mm. got the golden sword, or the golden hilted sword in yeah. one. And you've got the golden crown in the other. Yeah, and, and there's an exchange between those directly because, of course, Nero wins the sword and presumably takes it with him back into the other world. So, you know, the crown has come from the other world into Kruachan and the sword has gone from Kruachan to the other world. Yeah, and, mm. and I think that crown is interesting. As mm. far as I can see, if they is a sort of um, metaphorical or mm, an, a parable, parable. Almost, yeah. it's almost a parable of sovereignty through contract, co conquest yes yeah which of course is part of the whole theme of the Toynbokunia once again we can't get away from it you know yeah you see if in a way that crown yeah. represents the whole story exactly we keep finding this these little nuggets microcosm cosmic worlds in yeah. these stories. Oh, let's look at the sheer world. I mm. just wanted to go through that in my head to see if I've got that straight. Mm. Um, I, I suppose it's a mirror image to the Court of Crookham. It's underground in a hollow hill, but it's also completely solid and real, you know, with woodlands it's a and fields world. and cattle. Yeah. Um, there's a status system there. You've got mm. kings, warriors. And, of um, course, Nero losing his status as a foreigner and, and becoming a firewood. Yeah. I person. mean, there's no obvious magic. It's perfectly OK to eat the food yeah. or yeah. drink the water. Not like in other Hollow Hill tales. Yeah. You can fool the king. He's fooled mm. by the illness trick, for yeah. instance. He is not omniscient by any means. And he, he doesn't discover by some 
magic mirror on the wall yeah. what's happening and so, the password's not of magical significance no. anyway it's a familiar motive from a number of tales yeah and it, it's even kind of believable if you like in a, in a realistic sense you know that if you've got a secret entrance to your fortress you'd want to have a, a password you know in fact the magic only happens at the portals in the world yes yeah. the places where they touch exactly and my favorite bit is the anomaly of the flowering branch which yes. I think just sums up the contrast between the two worlds it does and it also is the key to the difference between the worlds which is what's happening in terms of time and in terms of the season that's the biggest difference if you like you remember in the last podcast episode mm. i sort of listed elements of, mm. of, of another world yeah characteristics, characteristics of a sort of fairyland yeah. said yeah. there was time shifting mm -hmm. shape shifting mazing events that don't conform to the laws of physics as mm. well the temporal world and the strong symbolic logic yes. almost like the dream logic mm. If we look at this story, the mm. world of Nera's woman, mm. time shifting. Yeah. I think that is Definitely. central. Yeah, absolutely. Shape shifting. Not per se, no. There's the sort of parallelism between humans and the cows particularly. Yeah. And, you know, Nera's son born at the same time as this yeah. cow. But it's not shape shifting as we usually mean it. Amazing. Well, I suppose Nero is utterly confused. Mostly. Yeah, but would you blame him? What <laughs> <laughs> um, about the laws of physics, the laws of nature? They seem to actually be remarkably consistent, you know, yeah. with that exception of time and season. There's no suggestion, I think, that the trees are always in fruit or always in flowers, just that it's summer there while it's winter in Cruachan. And what about the symbolic logic? Well, that's very strong in the very first part, which we looked at in our corpse carrying episode. Yeah. You know, that part with coming up to the houses protected by lakes and by a ring of fire, that's very kind of symbolic dream logic. And I suppose the sort of thing about the lame man and the blind man and yeah. the well, that has that sort of dream metaphorical quality oh, about yeah, it. Oh yeah, big time. That's your Jungian archetypes all over, yeah. I suppose the best we can say is we've got two clear parallel worlds mm which only cause paradox points of crossover. Yeah, at those exact points that they touch. It's a bit like sort of matter meeting antimatter. It is. I mean, it's it's much more sci-fi yeah, than that fantasy. Yeah, 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 you know, this, which I love, of course. You know. What, like Star Trek? You know? It is a bit Star Trek, yeah, but, you know, we are geeks and we're not ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about we look at the cattle raids and the bad judgments? Oh, God, where do you want to begin? <laughs> <laughs> well, it just struck me, it struck me that the story all the way through has its roots in constant bad judgments yeah or or flippancy you know taking a serious oath for a, a trivial yeah. matter well we've seen in lots of stories all the way through my tour if i talk about everything we look at yeah bad judgment in a leader oh yeah opens the door to chaos it does it's end of the world stuff and once that chaos is unleashed it, it takes other world characters to put it right yes and often by overturning it even further and ensuring that there's total chaos in order to build it up from the ground again. I mean, that was utterly clear in Wittura, exactly, wasn't it, really? Yeah. But let's go through. You've got Maeve and Eilil's somewhat cavalier behaviour in making a brash a a challenge at Samhain. Yes, yeah. We know it's a dangerous time. Yeah. Is it the right time to start doing that? Yeah, and is a golden... Uh, sword, an appropriate gift for tying a bit of willow around a corpse. You know, the, it's it's disproportionate. It's with trouble, isn't it? It is, yeah, totally, yeah. Then you've got, um, you were talking about Fergus, and maybe this needs more explanation on in the blog, but mm. there's uh, Concover's poor judgment in the Deirdre affair. Yes, yeah, which, as we said, is incredibly complex. And leads directly to the exile of Fergus. Exactly, yes, yeah. And it, it, it has to do with, you know, the, the ill treatment of a young woman. It's not a pleasant story. But I think it is all unquestionably a bad judgment. Mm -hmm. you know, no doubt about and, it. And um, you were saying that you have this feeling that Fergus. 
This yeah. is a feeling. But... It is. Now, um, it's been a while since I've gone into the whole Ulster material, what's known as the Ulster cycle. And as you've probably gathered, it is all very interlinked and quite complex. But my sense of it, and I will research to see whether this holds true or not, is that Fergus ought to have been the king instead of Kung Cover. Well, if that's so, that mm. is absolutely fascinating because mm. what we, we, as we've made clear in another podcast mm. episode, um, really Maeve has no right to the sovereignty of Crookan. Exactly. She stole it from her sister. Yeah. So we've already got two bad judgments. And usurpers. Two usurpations. Yeah, yeah. And that, of course, is that is breaking the law of uh, natural justice. Exactly. The, that's breaking court. That is, you know, very do, fundamental. Do you know, we're getting terribly close to Greek theatre here in Hubris. I know, yeah. Sorry, but, I've been restarting yeah. that recently. So <laughs> I'm going, this is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's another subject. And then even Nera's decision to sleep with the woman. Yeah, although, you know... I don't think he had much choice. Well, <laughs> did he have much choice? Did the king think that anything else was going to happen by sending him to a single woman's house? There is a kind of... That feels more like it's inevitable. Well, yes, and to listeners, it wouldn't have been surprising. Not or even shocking in exactly. any sense whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but nevertheless, the King of the She is not happy about it. Yeah, and it's almost like he should have been asked for permission. Well, the significant thing to me here is that Nera agrees to accept the consequences. Yes, and of course, part of that is that he is going to have a son who has a, a place in the other world. And that he kind of has to accept that he's the stranger, he's the coup glass in the other world, and that's going to affect his son's uh, status and his mm. son's upbringing. But of course, because Nera is going to have a son, that means the cow is going to have a calf, that means that that calf is going to go and mate with the Dunkulnia and everything else sort of unfolds mm. from there. Nera goes back to the other world. Yeah. He goes to find his status exactly. in that world. Yeah, and so that I see that almost as an acceptance of consequence, that he accepts that his place now is in the other world mm -hmm. with his family, even if that means having lost status. In, yeah. in that case, he is the only one who acts honourably. So As does his woman, of course. Oh, yeah, even with her, is, is a, a, she's got a different role to play. I think it? she does. Yeah. So if we can sum it up, then mm. the cattle raid is initiated by the paradox of Nera having a child in the sheer world, mm -hmm. and that this must be balanced by disturbance in the temporal world. It's pretty major disturbance. <laughs> and of course, we've really already looked at Colin's role. Yes, uh, partly thanks to the Toynbow Rug of No, which makes it so clear. The main thing to, I think, really be aware of with that is this business where he doesn't want anything to leave his territory without his knowledge and that there has to be a balance between what comes in and what goes out. And we really mustn't leave out Morrigan. Oh no, can't do that. I mean, she's there working in the background, but mm. it's so, so central to the story. If we recap, she's the prime mover in destruction and restoration of Kaur. Yes, that natural rightness and justice. The equivalent of the... Of Egyptian Ma'at. Egyptian Ma'at, yeah. yeah. But she will use destruction in order to restore order. Yes. And she has to do this in this case mm. because of all the bad judgments. <laughs> yes. Particularly Concovers and Maves, I feel. Absolutely, yeah. We've got it in for them sometimes. I know, I know. But I they know. do do such stupid things. Yeah. <laughs> and trivial things. Well, one of the Morrigan's other roles, obviously, is to go around and move cows while people are asleep. <laughs> Big stuff then. What does she do? <laughs> she moves cows while people are asleep. <laughs> well, she does. She does it when Nera goes to watch his herd. He falls asleep <laughs> and she takes the cow off him, brings it up to Kulnia. When she's coming out of Kulnia, 
Cucullin's asleep and uh, while she's trying to sneak the cow out. But not only that, but if you go quite a way back to when we were looking at the Morrigan, she also steals a bull from Uthras and Buchad while Uthras is watching the herd and falls asleep. And that bull that she steals, called Schleven, is the father of the Don Cunha. Lucky number Schleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) you know, so this is part of what... She's been at this for ages, you know? (laughs) It's one of her main jobs. Exactly. One thing I do want to say, the Morgan makes it clear, there are no Irish fairy godmothers. She starts acting like a fairy godmother, but it isn't. Mm -mm. Uh, No one ever waves a magic wand to make things better. No, it usually makes things much worse, And I suppose the reason that came to mind is there are echoes a little bit of Cinderella here. Yeah. The versions before the fairy godmother, Mm. often the heroine was advised by a red calf Mm-mm. or sometimes the voice of the mother from the grave who yeah. was planted under a hazel, a hazel tree. tree yeah. But you have got the red calf turns up now and again. Yeah. Really, to sum up, yeah. I suppose we could say that the main events that lead to the Toyn... The Toyn Bokun, yeah? Yeah, one of the Toyn. <laughs> yeah. All involve situations where characters are moved from... Or swap between centres. Yeah, we've got uh, Fergus moving from, from Evan down to Cruachan, of course. Nearer from Cruachan to the She. Yeah. The She a cow from the She to Over to Murthabna, where Cuchulain is, uh, yeah. Every time the status quo is overthrown. And with objects, as we've pointed out a couple of times along the way, when they're in the wrong place as well. We've got that movement of, between the crown and the sword. We've even got the movement between things that are supposed to be in the house or out of the house. You know, that that is, I think, an underlying image and theme. You know what we should have called this episode? We should call it A Place for Everything and Everything in Its Place. <laughs> well, the other main theme that I think we should look at is, is one that's central to this story, is mm. the this other world, the fairy world, yeah, the, the sheer she, world. Yeah. yeah. It's a huge topic. It will fill a book, and it frequently has. Absolutely. I suppose a generally held view is that the primitive Irish gods and goddesses sort of later became the people of the sheep. Yeah. Agree to a point. To a point, but um, I think that where we might differ is by making a distinction between the primitive Irish gods and goddesses and the people of the sheep. I don't think they were ever all that different to start with. It depends how you define God, doesn't it? It does, of course. I mean, I suppose omnipotent beings with a direct concern and interest in human behaviour. They're not gods and goddesses. No, and they're certainly not creators either of the universe or of humanity. Um, They do have an influence and they are different from humanity. Um, And as we've seen, particularly in this story, the way that the Morrigan is creating events in the background. Uh, But I think that's more because it's the natural order that's been overturned. It's not really directed against individuals per se. I mean, Mm -hmm. it might seem like she's got it in for Cúchulain. Would you accept them as ancestor figures, still sort of... Yeah, and I mean, if you think about the mystery of the Neolithic monuments all around the country, which, as we said, you know, an Iron Age society would have been living cheek by jowl, once they go out of living memory, then they become more amorphous and become more like ancestors than relatives. Mm. Um, And I kind of see it more in that continuous line. And of course you put then your dead relatives under the ground, yeah. which is where those mysterious people were. I don't think we're conflating gods and the dead. And yeah. I, I, I don't know, if I was going to try and define it, I mm. would say that the uh, these 
figures of the Dodonan mm. are largely ancestor figures of whom stories were told. Exactly. They are the big figures of story. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got the local spirits of the landscape, mm. the the equivalent of the Lares and Penates of the Romans or the genie Loki. Yes. You know, that every every hill is a hollow hill and every well is a source. And yeah. if there was any sort of worship, it mm. was these local spirits who yeah. could affect you where you were. Well, of course, those what you might call genius loci are often the source for the story that gives the name to a local place. So your local hill, your local fort has both a story and a character that's associated with it. And that's the Dinhenicus that we've been trying to get at through this whole series. Um, and you can feel the genie loki in some of these stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And the story itself becomes the story becomes that which is uh, sacred, if you like. Exactly. In the same way as these old characters of stories mm. um, are become the special, the yes. set apart people. Yeah. Who have more power as ancestors. Exactly. Um, in fact, I was trying to think it's only ever really the Morrigan who deliberately enters into the world of humans, maybe yeah. the Dagda. Yeah, yeah. And his other form, Kuroi, as we've seen. Yeah, and there are later uh, instances of things like charms and prayers that, that ask for help from the craftsmen like Gaifnu and Dian Kate. Mm. But, you know, it is almost well, like... this is terribly speculative. It is very speculative. And I think it shows there isn't a simple answer to this I one. I think what I'm protesting about mm. is that we're not dealing with the classical gods and no. the pantheons of Rome and uh, Greece. Greece. Yeah. And they just can't be looked at that way. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's a hard idea to get away from. It is very, very mm. hard. But if we look, if we move on to the next stage, what happened to them? I mean, this so-called post-Milesian yes. world of the Book of Invasions, mm. where it's said that uh, after the, the Sons of arrived yes then um after they finally landed yes the, the get... country is divided uh, between overground and underground in the old days it had been divided between north and south mm. and now it's divided between up above and down below yeah and i suppose that's why you have this association with the uh tour de Donan, yes. with the hollow hills exactly that they get the underground bit yeah and it is as we've said so many times so interesting that a text like Echthronera, which is more or less contemporaneous with a text like Moitura, has such a different such view. Such a different worldview. Exactly. That that in uh, Echthronera, it is that sort of idea that the Sons of Mill have come and that the two a day have gone underground. And that's the setting in which they're interacting. Whereas you just don't have that division whatsoever in the story of Catherine No, the even the Fovera are mm. just another tribe. Exactly, yeah. They're not demons at the time. They're no. just an equal tribe. But they do develop into demons, which yeah. is interesting, or into monsters, you know. So next, the next stage seems to be the sort of Christian categorization, mm. which is interesting. It is. Um, I mean, the, the church later decided they didn't know what to do with the fairy lore at all. They hadn't got a clue. Yeah, but they, they didn't want to necessarily squash it, which I think is interesting as well. Particularly in Ireland. So that it, they had to be fitted into the grand scheme, yeah. of course. Neutral angels, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So that uh, the Luciferian rebellion, mm. the ones who wouldn't take sides mm. and attempted to stay neutral. neutral. Like Ireland, yes. <laughs> were sent down to the earth. Yes. Where they were made immortal, but mm. they could no longer... Ever become angels or achieve heaven again. Mm, mm. 
Um, but they they weren't condemned to hell either, you know. So, which is interesting. It means that these kind of fairy tale other world people are not associated with hell or the devil or oh, demons. Oh, not at all. Yeah. But they had this quality of um, this is where your whole trick or treat kind of things mm. come from. They could do you good or ill. Or ill. They were yeah, neither. Exactly. And I suppose that leads to their dwindling. Yeah. And by the time we have uh, Tiger Cane and the fairies, mm. they've become the little people. Yeah. Oh yeah. dear, and then you end up with all your leprechauns oh. and stuff like. And as you reminded me, leprechauns are actually sea spirits. Yes, and they're probably closer to the fuvra than the, the little green guy that comes out of your breakfast cereal. <laughs> so I don't have green guys coming out of my breakfast cereal. <laughs> yeah, but you fortunately missed those awful ads, which I'm not going to go through now. Oh, but, please don't. Yeah, well. But it ends up with almost like Shakespeare's Park in mm. a cowslip. Bed I Lie yeah. or um, Queen Mab. Mm. Do you think she really is Queen Maeve? I see Queen Mab has been with you. Yes, well, I think there's a, a strong likelihood that that's where the name has come from. I mean, we know that among Shakespeare's sources were British and Irish fairy tales. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you've only to look at King Lear with his children. That's a bit obvious in terms of the name. So, yeah, and why of course, not? Uh, Spencer's <laughs> Fairy Queen is, was written in... Down in Cork, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it is quite possible that mm. it comes down to... Queen Mab, the yeah. fairy midwife, and all mm. the rest of it, which I don't think Maeve would have been delighted with. <laughs> Serves her right. <laughs> so, oh, the wonderful Eclair and Era. Mm. It's a long way from Tales with Leprechauns. Thank goodness. Crocs of gold at the end of inaccessible <laughs> rainbows. Mm. No, I think I prefer Nera's other world, definitely. Thank you for listening to Ogilith Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.